yeah, it's, it's wonderful again to be sharing this day with you. And um, it's actually great uh, to be just in the same room as Dave Bilbra, I, I must admit. Um, I, I used to be a vic vicar in Essex, and the church we had was not very grand at all, and it was, you know, no one ever came to our church. But um, some members of our congregation, I think they must have known Dave, and they got him to come and do an evening at our church about four centuries ago. And it was, really, um, it was really a high point in our church's life then, so it's great, uh, great to be here. I thought I'd tell you a bit about me uh, to begin with. Um, my own fascination with the healing ministry began really um, on the day I came to Christ. Or, as I often put it, the day really that Christ came to me. My story is that just after um, I left school, um, I, I went to live in Paris for a year. A very hard time in my life, as you can imagine. And um, I went to the English-speaking church there, really just to meet friends. I had no real living faith, but I thought that would be a good place to go uh, to meet some English people. And... One Sunday, they had a visiting speaker, and he was actually the guy that held then the job that I hold now. And he was talking about healing, and it was fascinating. And he, he said that after his talk, if anybody wanted to come up and receive prayer, he loved to pray. And I, I was okay, but I remember I did have a friend that was sick, and I, I went up for prayer. And... I don't know what happened, but I just knew my life would change at that moment. Somehow, Christ had touched me. And from that moment, I just knew everything was going to be different. And after that, I came back home to you know, my, my hometown, which was the most boring place in the world, called Utoxeter. A lot of folk have been through it, and that's exactly what you ought to do, um, because there's nothing, if, they, if they're from there, my deep apologies, um, but so am I. And um, it, we went along, or I went along to my sort of local parish church, and it wasn't quite the vibrant place I'd left behind in Paris, but I sort of persevered, and then one day, my eyes lit up. Because the vicar announced that the healing group were going to be meeting on Thursday night in the vicarage. And I thought, yes, this has got to be good. As so I went along, and the uh, healing group, bless them, it was a, a group of um, people who were politely on the heavenward side of 70. <laughs> and they had a list of people even older and sicker than them. And they would read out their name and give their thoughts on how long the person had left before heaven would come to claim them. And it was a bit depressing. And so it goes of Enid Jones. Well, she's very ill, Vicar. I think she's dying, Vicar. I thought, this is the healing group. And it kind of marred my view of healing for a few years. Um, luckily, um, a little time after that, I was introduced to 
a slightly more hopeful view of healing, um, really through Crowhurst at that time, and then through the ministry of uh, people like John Wimber, who, who I saw here. And I began to see healing was actually a little more than just a quick route to heaven. And, um, and, and then somehow, um, by either the grace of God or complete divine oversight, uh, we ended up at the Christian Healing Mission. And, uh, well, Jill and I have been there now for about 20 years. And one thing we've been seeking to do over this time, really, is to reach out to people across the whole spectrum of the church with this incredible news that Jesus does heal the sick. And I suppose in the last 10 years or so, what we've become really passionate about is this sense of bringing people, actively bringing people into the presence of God and seeing what can flow out of that time of being in His presence. And that's really what this day is about. Because I don't know about you, but I, I, I want to discover just how much there is of God that I can find and I can experience in this, this lifetime. Because I, I do believe that our, our, our experience of God is woefully shallow, really. I think there's so much more of Him we could experience. I'm often struck by that story in John chapter 4, where Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well. And it's one of those amazing conversations whereby they are evidently talking about two entirely different things. And there's a woman talking about water, and Jesus talking about something utterly on a, on a different level. And Verse 10 of John 4, um, for me, sums this up because we read there Jesus saying these words to her. If, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I love that phrase, if you knew, if you only knew who it was that is here today, if we only knew what he has for us, it could change everything. And so what I want us to ponder today are these three things, if only we knew how much God the Father loved us. If only we knew just how close Jesus was to us. And if only we knew the power of the Spirit that's available to us. I think it would change everything. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to start by pondering this whole thing of the Father's love for us. If only we knew just how much God the Father loves every one of us. Now, 
We all know about the love of God. Of course we do. We've heard so many sermons on it. We've heard uh, songs about it. We've sung songs about it. We read about it. But I do have this theory just from talking to people, to so many people over the years, that it's much harder for us to actually believe that this love of God is actually for us. And yet it's so central, I think, to this whole theme of healing. Because if we're seeking healing, what I think often holds us back is this idea, does he love me enough to heal me? Does he love me enough to touch me? Now, I know he loves that person enough, but what about me? Am I loved enough for God to do something wonderful, spectacular, miraculous, transforming in my life? And I think we don't, actually. And the reason we don't could be, well, many reasons. One reason, I think, is often we, we may not have had a good experience of this whole word, Father. And maybe if your earthly father was maybe distant or abusive or downright cruel, that will affect, and it can affect, just how we feel about this word Father and by the nature of Father God, how we feel about him and his love. And so the question I want to ask you today is this. How much does Father God love you and why? How much does Father God love you and why? And I think the answer to how much does God love you is quite staggering. It's more than quite a lot, really. Father God loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. Father God loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. Now let me tell you why I, why I think that. In the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 5, we come across this word. Actually, the whole chapter has a number of ways that we are described. One way we are described is this. We are adopted. We are adopted. Now, in those days, in that culture, the word adoption would have had a different meaning from how we view adoption. But actually, the way we view adoption, I think, is actually quite close, very close to the heart of God. Let's think about adoption for a moment. Just supposing there are um, you know, two uh, parents, and imagine they have a child born to them in a natural way, but for whatever reason, they can't have any more children, but would like to. So, 
one of the options open is they decide to adopt. And they go to the various adoption agencies and they choose the child they're going to adopt. Now, imagine the conversations just before the moment of adoption. What do the parents say first to their natural child? Do they say, you are the one we really love. You are the apple of our eye. You are so treasured. Now, we're going to adopt this other child, but don't worry about it. You're the one we really love. Okay? We've built a little shed at the bottom of the garden for them, okay? and they'll be living in there. You get your own room. All right. If you could be nice to them you know, once in a while, that would really thrill our hearts. But don't worry if you can't. You're a real child. And then do they turn to the child they're going to adopt and say, you are so lucky to have us. We built you your very own shed. And every day we're going to bring you the scraps from our table and bring them to you. We'll put them in a bowl. You can eat them all. They're all for you. Once a week, you can come and have a meal with us. But you better be grateful. Because if you're not, it's back to the workhouse. Is that how it works? Don't say yes. Please don't say yes. <laughs> the idea behind adoption, as I understand it, is that you bring another child into your house so you can pour upon them all the love you have for your existing child. That you can create such a bond of love with them that eventually folk will look at your family and not be able to spot which is the adopted child or the real child. That's how it's meant to work. Now, let's just think about this a bit more. We are the ones who are adopted. We have been brought into the existing love relationship of the Father and the Son bound by the Spirit. We are not brought in to live in a shed at the bottom of God's garden. We are not brought in so we don't bother anybody and keep as quiet as we possibly can, we are welcomed as beloved sons and daughters of the living God. There was a, a beautiful moment in John 17. That whole chapter is a beautiful prayer. The very last verse of that chapter, John 17, 26, Jesus is speaking to his Father, and he says this, Father, I have made you known. I'll continue to make you known so that the love that you have for me might be in them. In other words, the, the point about his ministry, 
what he was seeking to do through his actions, through his teaching, was to show us that the love that he and the Father shared could be the love that we can share with the Father as well. He wants us to know that we, you and I, you, are his beloved daughter. And you are his precious son. And the words that that the Father spoke over Jesus, you are my beloved child. I take pleasure in you. If I, if that love is for me, those words are for me too and for you. We are his precious sons, his precious daughters. He delights in us. He delights in you, in every one of us. And and I think the trouble is that we find that so hard to really grasp for us because we kind of think that maybe God has, if you like, an A-team of his special adopted children. And then he has the B-team or even the C, D, E, and F team. And whoever the A team are, we ain't in that lot. We're in the, we're in the other ones. You know, it, it's like, you know, we might be in God's family, but I'm the fourth cousin 18 times removed. You know, I, I might get a Christmas card if I'm lucky and he remembers who I am. But, but the New Testament doesn't speak at all about A teams or B teams. It doesn't speak about cousins, however many times removed they are. It only speaks of one thing. Adopted sons and daughters. And that's you, and that's me. And you can spend hours trying to find where you're not in that. And you won't, because you are. You are his adopted son, his adopted daughter, and he delights in every one of us here today. I am... It's such a beautiful parable that I think brings this home to us. You know, because I I think that the biggest thing for us to grasp is, is this really for me? It is. One of the most beautiful parables is in Luke 15. It's the parable of the lost sheep. Um, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. I don't know if any of you have any sheep. I, I don't know, but you might. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country? And go after the lost sheep until he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. This is the most ridiculous story I think ever told. Um, And I think, you know, we often read it in church with a very straight face. 
I think it's a joke. I think he was telling us an amusing story to make an incredibly powerful point. Now, I don't know what you know about sheep. Um, I don't know an awful lot about sheep. Actually, there is though some um, awful speculation that we were named after a very popular breed of sheep called the Ryland sheep. Um, it's embarrassing to be named after sheep, but I'm getting used to it. Anyway, one day, in a particularly um, idle time of my life, I googled the word sheep. And you have to have a pretty low day to find a googling sheep. But I did, I googled sheep. And in my googling of the word sheep, I found out two fascinating facts about sheep that I think change this story. The first thing about sheep is this. They are natural wanderers. Second thing about sheep, they have absolutely no sense of direction. Anybody who knows me will now know why we were named after sheep, I think, because those two things are quite true of me as well. Let's think about this, this parable. In the light of these two facts, there's a shepherd, and he has 100 natural wanderers with no sense of direction. And, I don't know, he nips behind a bush or something, and he comes back again, and he notices something, and he counts them up. One of them's missing. Miracle is they're all missing. One of them is missing. He looks up, and there he is, old George, up on the hill up there. So what does our bright shepherd do? I know. I'll leave these 99 natural wanderers with no sense of direction, and I'll go and find George. And so off he goes up the hill, and he finds George, puts George on his shoulders, comes back rejoicing, and where have they all gone? <laughs> you know? You look up, there they are, all over the hills. So you put George down. Sit. You know, George sits and off you go. You find another one. You come back. George has wandered off again. You go, you spend your rest of your life counting sheep and catching them. You see, the point of this story is this. That sheep wander, but every single one matters. You know, I think I'd take of you, well, I lost one, 99, they'll breed, you know, you'll make up the numbers eventually. No. This shepherd went to ridiculous lengths to find the one that was lost. Seemingly stupid lengths to leave all those behind because that one, that one mattered. Well, he had a flock of a hundred. It could have been a thousand. Could have been ten thousand, a million, a billion, seven billion. Doesn't matter. The message is the same. The one matters. Who's the one? It's you and me. Every one of us matters. Ah, oh, there's a room full of people. Does he know I'm here? Yes. Because you matter. You matter. 
Uh, uh, we are, you know, if, you, if you just turn around where you are, you'll see a crowd. A nice crowd. You see a crowd. He doesn't see crowds. He sees every one of us. Every one of us matters desperately to him. And, and we need to catch this truth. We matter. Why? Why do I matter so much? Why do you matter so much? Well, I don't think it's because of your astounding goodness. I'm sure you are astoundingly good. I have no reason to believe you're not. But that's not why you matter. You know, the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16, says this. God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. In other words, this gift of Jesus who makes us good and makes us righteous, he was given not as a reward because we're good, but because we're bad and he loves us. You matter because he loves you. You might not work out why he loves you. Well, you know, tough. You're not meant to work it out. You just are loved. He loves you so much. He loves all of us so much. And I think the trouble is we often think, well, if I were, if I were better, God would love me more. Or if I was more like them, God would love me more. It's not true. He loves you because you're you. And that's what he loves about you. You're you and not like him or her or whoever else we compare ourselves to. You are loved. When we pray for folk at the mission, um, one of the things that we love to do is that before we uh, talk about, you know, pray about their needs or anything, we invite people to stand on, is that the tackiest thing you've ever seen in your life? <laughs> yeah, you, for me, I love it. What this, this rug demonstrates, and we invite people to stand on it, is it's all of God's love for you. That as you stand on this, you are enveloped, you are encircled, you are resting on something that is so precious, so unique for you. It's his love. And just to let people stand on that, to forget all the unworthiness that they often feel accompanies them. To stand on his love is everything. You can uh, try it out over coffee. That love is for you and I, it's for all of us.
This is what God thinks of us. He loves us. He loves all of us. Uh, I remember once we were, I was leading a weekend for um, this group, and there was a, one guy, me, and about eight other ladies on this weekend. And I was talking a bit about this truth that we are loved by God. And to end it, I began to pray for the group. And I, I just used these words, Abba, Father. And just right after those words, the man began to cry and then to sob so loudly, uh, I just couldn't carry on. And he was bawling his eyes out. And after about five or six very, very long minutes, he stopped and then he shared his story. And he was in his, uh, I don't know, uh, late 60s perhaps, and he shared how that he'd been abused by his father uh, right from you know, a young child, uh, emotionally and physically abused. And so for him, this word father had always been such a negative word because it, it had such bad connotations for him. And, you know, he, he said he, I mean, he was a, a, a lay minister in the church. He, you know, he all his, in a sense, faith was towards Jesus because he could cope with that. But somehow, just these simple words, Abba, Father, God used those words, I think the Spirit of God used it, just to pierce his heart with the depth of God's love for him. And in just those few moments, something beautiful changed in his life. He was actually in a wheelchair. That night, he got out of his wheelchair and never got back in. I have absolutely no idea what the relationship was between his, I suppose, that emotional uh, disability that he felt through father and how it was playing out in his body, but something happened, and his life was changed in so many ways that night. Because, I don't know if he opened himself up to God, or God just did something amazing, but this truth of the individual love that God had for him touched his heart, and it was so beautiful, and it was so powerful for him. What I'd love us to do now is to find something of this wonderful love of the Father for us. You saw me hold up that red rug. If I had enough, I'd have bought one for every one of you, but I really don't. Um, I'd love you in a moment to see yourself on that rug. Um, 
To begin with, though, I'd love to uh, I'd love you to just sit, and I'd love to play um, a song for you. The song's by a guy called Godfrey Bertil, and it's, um, it's called I'm Not Disappointed in You. And uh, what Godfrey loves to do is he loves to go into, actually, um, psychiatric wards and look young people in the eye and sing this song to them, to relate to them the depth of the truth, that they are loved, and he's not disappointed in them. So I hope we're going to have the words and the song, so just, just enjoy this for a few minutes. <laughs> 